0: Good bone health makes active aging possible. Join us for inspiring conversations from diverse perspectives in osteoporosis from patients, healthcare providers, caregivers, policymakers, researchers, advocates, and innovators. Protect your ability to live your best life. The information and opinions expressed in Bone Talk are not intended to replace the services of trained and qualified health professionals or to be a substitute for medical advice of physicians. You may review the National Osteoporosis Foundation's full medical disclaimer at NOF.org.
1: Good morning, everyone. This is Elizabeth Thompson, the CEO at the National Osteoporosis Foundation, and I'm absolutely delighted today to introduce Dr. Doug Beal. Dr. Beal is the Chief of Radiology Services Clinical Radiology at Oklahoma. In addition to treating patients, Dr. Beal is also a clinical researcher and a former captain in the U.S. Air Force Medical Corps and summited Mount Everest in May 2007. Dr. Beal, we're excited to have a conversation today with you about treatment options for people with vertebral compression fractures. Let's start by understanding a little bit more about you and your motivation to treat people who are affected with osteoporosis and vertebral fractures.
2: Well, thanks. Liz. great to be with you. I think uh, I'd like to restate the purpose. My purpose is less to treat people with for their underlying osteoporosis and more to. Improve their lives and improve their outcomes. My practice is one that is based on minimally invasive spine procedures. I'm an interventional radiologist by trade and board certified in interventional pain management as well. And my focus started way back when, over 20 years ago, treating people with vertebral compression fractures. And these fractures are prominently painful. Can be. And they can also be prominently debilitating and have an increased rate of mortality or of the patient dying in the acute and subacute phases, the early phases of the fracture. So once you treat people, that's the symptom. You know, this is the shot across the bowel. This is often the first and early warning signs of the fact that they do have osteoporosis or low bone density. So after the fracture is fixed, then then what? So the, my involvement in treating the patients really came from the then what? You know, what, what do we do at this point in time? Typically, patients would go back to their primary care doctors for treatment of their osteoporosis. The problem is there's a big treatment gap. People didn't go back and were not effectively treated. And so to close that gap and to improve their treatment, to correct the problem of their osteoporosis with a low bone density, That's when I got involved and had been doing it for a very long time.
1: Thank you for that. So 20 years doing this, obviously an expert. You talked a little bit about the pain. Tell us exactly what a vertebral compression fracture is and are they common?
2: Vertebral fracture is exceedingly common the most common fragility fracture. So you can think of people, often they understand a fragility fracture or an osteoporotic fracture being a hip fracture. Think about how many people that have hip fractures and how many families are adversely affected. Somebody has morbidity, mortality, and somebody dies of a hip fracture. And I think most people can think their families have been affected by that. Vertebral compression fracture twice as common twice as common as a hip fracture. And these are tremendously debilitating. They come in two varieties. One is that they're asymptomatic, don't produce any pain or symptoms. Patient may not even know they have it. And that are very symptomatic and don't get better and don't heal over time and continue to cause debilitation. So any type of acute or sudden onset of back pain in somebody that's 50 years or older, should really have the warning signs and uh, should signal the red flag of the possibility that that might be an osteoporotic vertebral compression fracture. And these fractures are associated with a very high rate of mortality, primarily because of the debilitation. Just statistically, people that have fractures are between eight and nine times more likely to die from that fracture than other people the same age. You know, not double, triple, but between eight and nine times. So the, uh, the death really comes from debilitation, meaning pneumonia or something that is caused by just laying around, which is blood clots to the lungs.
1: Wow, I don't think a lot of people have any idea about that, Dr. Beale. Thank you for raising that alarm for us and really underscoring why this is so critically important. We do have a crisis
2: in the treatment. I think people don't understand that, sparingly, if at all, past the medical professionals. There's a cognitive dissonance here. There's two different kinds of fractures. The vertebral fractures are so common and asymptomatic or fractures that are not painful are seen quite frequently on chest x-rays, on uh, DEX or bone density scanning, maybe CT scans. And they, you see it and uh, often they'll, they'll not be symptomatic. But whenever you do have one that's tremendously debilitated, it's kind of confusing to people. They, they don't really understand what to do. And if plan A for treatment of that painful fracture is bracing rest analgesics, including opioids, plan B, if they don't get any better, cannot be basing rest and analgesics. And often that is people don't, they have a, a knowledge gap on what to do. And the fact is these fractures are, are fairly easily treated. And for the people that I see commonly, they will have painful fractures in excess of six weeks. I mean, the, the, the very common, Monday, for example, I treated eight people with painful vertebral compression fractures. The average amount of time was anywhere between three and six months of agonizing pain before they were able to be treated. And the treatment for this is is simple. So it's like an injection. It's not an injection, but it's like an injection. And the outcome is almost always immediate and profound pain relief.
1: So you talked to us a little bit about the treatment options. You've said there could be bracing and pain medicine, and then an injection, not an injection, that you do. Tell us a little bit more about that treatment option.
2: Yeah. So going a little half a step back to the non-surgical management, this is Bracing rest and with and this has kind of been the treatment method that's been employed most often, but it's not very effective. And in fact, if you look at just bracing, there's been articles in the literature by authors and Bailey that say it doesn't make any difference whether you brace somebody or not, whether it's a hard brace, soft brace, or in fact, no brace. If you brace them acutely or not acutely, it just doesn't seem to matter. And a recent meta-analysis, a grouping of analyzing all the medical literature by an author named Brezwuska, he said that if you look at all the medical literature on non-surgical management as a treatment for vertebral compression fractures, it's ineffective, ineffective and probably shouldn't be employed. So having said that, those of us who treat know this. We know that, that non-surgical management is, is typically not very effective. So for patients with persistent symptoms, you move on for, for treatment of these. And this involves essentially three categories. So, these are all vertebral stabilizing procedures. One is just injection of stabilizing a liquid that turns into a solid it's a bone cement, close cousin of bulletproof glass. And it's an acrylic polymer, and this immediately stabilizes it with just injection into the bone. That's called a vertebroplasty. And then the second type of procedure is called a kyphoplasty, and that's putting in a balloon or other type of mechanical device to make the fracture anatomy more normal, then stabilizing it with acrylic polymer or some other type of stabilizing material. And the third option is an implant. And typically the implants we use currently are little small titanium jacks that we put in and jack the fracture, the compression fracture back up to normal height and then stabilize it. So these are all kind of evolutionary and progressive methods of it's an evolution of treating a vertebral compression fracture to essentially decompress that fracture, make the anatomy normal and then fix it in place. And that's what provides the immediate pain relief.
1: So, important guidelines there and important comments that people should not lie around at home in debilitating pain. And if you're 50 and above and you have back pain, it may not be quote unquote normal. And they should see a specialist about the options because, as you just highlighted for us, there are options.
2: Yeah, that's right. That's right, Liz. I, uh, just to boil it down to make something very simple, simple and straightforward. If you're lying around, and let's say it's uh, some somebody that's elderly, make them arbitrarily seventy-five. How does a seventy-five-year-old patient do lying around for an extended period of time? Well, they, they don't do well. In fact, that's what gives rise to the mortality, the debilitation. And as my South African colleague says, you're either on legs or off legs. And if you're not walking, <laughs> if you're off legs, you're you're going to this will turn out very poorly. So people have very high rates of mortality based on this. Primarily, by far and away, the majority is pneumonia. People get pneumonia, they go downhill rapidly from that point on. So people laying around is never a good idea for any reason, especially this. And the treatment for this, let me try to bring in some more common sense. Somebody over 50 with acute onset of back pain that's debilitating, that is not normal. So I see patients that come in that, and I asked them what their treatment course was. You know, I had a, a person last week, she's 82 years old, and went into the ER, and the diagnosis, muscle strain. I mean, she's not throwing a football to her grandson, <laughs> streaking down the sidelines. I mean, throwing the 40 yard frozen rope, oh, muscle strain in my back. No, acute or subacute so onset of severe back pain, especially in a thin Caucasian female of the Northern European descent over the age of 65, is a fracture, period, until proven otherwise. And so just trying to let a little light of common sense come into this uh, sudden onset of pain and somebody that's at risk of, of a fracture is a fracture until proven otherwise. And it's simple and straightforward. Even just the surgical, and I put surgical in air quotes because thats it's more like an injection. I didn't close the uh, little poke hole with this suture or staple. They get a Band-Aid. It's not even suture worthy. But these are simple and highly effective. So we had a a recent, what's called a post-market trial, which means people, we tested kyphoplasty for the average patient that came in. And it's the largest trial ever done. It's called the EVOLVE trial. We were the number one site. We enrolled the most people. My average pain score from the time on a scale of one to 10 for people that had painful vertebral compression fractures before the procedure and after the procedure, the pain went from a nine to a 1.4, a 9 out of 10 to a 1.4 out of 10 the day after. On average, this is my mean pain score. So not only is this effective, this is highly effective, and this is based on 50 patients in that trial. So it's more than just two or three. And all comers, and this is the post-market trial, was based on Medicare criteria. So this is a very, very representative patient population.
1: Wow, that is... Almost jaw-dropping, Dr. Beale.
2: It is. The only thing in medicine that gets to this level of pain relief and functional improvement is vertebral augmentation.
1: That is amazing. So in a couple of points today, you've shared with us there are mortality risks, but I want to ask a specific question just so that we really drill down into that about the mortality risk associated with untreated vertebral compression
2: fractures. Yes. So the mortality risk in people that have symptomatic, untreated vertebral compression fractures, if you were to compare that with people, just the average patient population, that is a a very good question. That's a very good thought process and and very good exercise. In fact, we published a paper last year in Osteoporosis International. Kevin Ong, Josh Hirsch, I, and a few other co authors published an article looking at the entire Medicare data set from 10 years. And this is. 32 million patients. This is 2,077,000 patients that had vertebral fractures. And we looked at the morbidity and mortality. And what we found is that if you have people that have fractures that are just treated with what's called non-surgical management, bracing rest, analgesics, et cetera, maybe some physical therapy, which is a bad idea for people with fractures. But nevertheless, if you compare that group with the patients that got vertebroplasty, Injection into the bone. The vertebroplasty group had a 30% mortality benefit, meaning the patients with non-surgical management had a 30% higher mortality than the patients with the vertebroplasty group. For the patients with kyphoplasty, the mortality benefit was 55%. So, if you yeah. right, take two patient populations, one that is treated with bracing, rest, analgesics, and the other one that is treated with kyphoplasty. The non-surgical management group has a 55% increased risk of death, of mortality. So it wasn't even close, not even close. So let me turn that around to give somebody, uh, give you two more statistics that that may make this more easy to grasp. If you treat a patient with a vertebral fracture, either with vertebral plasty or kyphoplasty, and you compare those people that are treated versus people that are treated with just bracing rest and home the people who get treated with vertebral augmentation live between 2.2 and 7.3 years more. They have more life, longer life expectancy. They live that much longer, 2.2 to 7.3 years compared to the patients that are treated with the non-surgical management. And I want to leave you with one more statistic. We, We call this the NNT number needed to treat. And this article, as of our conversation this morning, is not yet published. It's submitted, but not yet published. Uh, and I'd like to give your listeners some a preview on this. So the number needed to treat is the number of patients you need to treat as a treating organization, a physician group to have a certain treatment effect. So the number of people needed to do angioplasty and stent placement of the heart for angina, heart pain, early heart attack, can't be calculated because it's too high. If you give an aspirin for stroke or a heart attack, In terms of a patient population, we recommend an aspirin to ameliorate or decrease symptoms from a stroke. The number of people needed to treat is 3,000. The number of people needed to treat for a heart attack to ameliorate or decrease symptoms of a heart attack for an aspirin a day is 1,667 patients. The number of patients needed to treat for kyphoplasty to save one life at one year is 15. So if you look at a patient population, this is the inside scoop I tell my colleagues who treat people with vertebral fractures. So statistically, gentlemen ladies, you're saving a life for every 15 people that you treat. And the reason why that number is so low is that this, for patients with persistent pain, that, that a fracture doesn't heal, this is incredibly debilitating and is associated with a very high rate of mortality. So the NNT, number of patients needed to treat to save one life, for patients with painful vertebral fractures is 15.
1: Dr. Beal, that really puts this into perspective. Thank you so much for that. Sharing that new information for your just about to be published paper, we're very excited and eager to see more from that. But thank you for that. That really framed up our our conversation today. A couple more questions. As you know, there's been a lot of information available to the public on a number of health topics. Dr. Google, as you may know, probably comes to your office more than you'd like. Recently, there were reports following plasty trials versus sham trials that really created a lot of confusion, leaving many physicians unsure of the potential benefits associated with vertebral augmentation and patient concern about its safety. You gave us some really wonderful information from your paper, but could you share a few more thoughts on that topic?
2: You bet. So, you know, I, I like Dr. Google parenthetically. I, I do. It's just the incomplete Dr. Googling is ill-advised. So I tell my patients, Google this, look it up. Here's the diagnosis. The more you know, the better off we both will be. And for patients that are very informed, this is fantastic. So one of the most confusing things around this is the sham trials and the misinformation associated with that. So let me straighten this out. This started in 2009 with two articles published in the New England Journal, articles by authors uh, David Kalmus and Rochelle Buckbinder. And these articles were came with the conclusion that sham or, or fake surgery that is never done is no better than vertebroplasty. And they came under a lot of attack and criticism, and rightly so, because these articles were poorly designed and poorly executed. And they had so many problems with them that they were downgraded to level two evidence. So later, an article by Dr. Paul Anderson and Bill Taunts downgraded these two to level two. So they, these are kind of subsequently discredited and downgraded. And unfortunately, it caused a lot of attention and confusion. And then a subsequent article called Vertos 4 by one of our colleagues, like Paul Lawley, tried to set this right. And A lot of the methodology that was corrected in this article, the problem is they compared this to a sham that was an active treatment that has uh, high-level evidence showing that this was an effective treatment. And then statistically, it was incorrectly analyzed. So the bottom line on the most recent Virtos 4 is statistically, it is so poorly done that you can't draw any conclusions from it. Let me give you an example. The fake surgery, the sham, that they did was an active treatment that's been shown to give people profound relief of back pain. And so that's one of the major problems. The other problem is, statistically, there's nothing in medicine that would beat this mark. So the sham treatment provided a pain relief of, let's do some simple math, 4.75. And the difference marker amount was 1.25. So if you add these up, so if you have the difference between pain, uh, um, that number, and the, the difference in what's called 4.75 plus 1.5 for the MCID, you know that's just the difference between the groups, you would need to have something that was 6.25 points out of 10, remember our 1 to 10 scale, to be better. And if you look at the fake surgery for Virtas4, there's nothing in medicine that beats that. So. Things like, you know, radio frequency ablation of nerves, uh, neuromodulation, cervical spine surgery, even the, the gold standard, one of the greatest orthopedic gold standards that we know, the hip replacement doesn't do better than that. So if you were to compare hip replacement versus the fake surgery in vertos four, you would say, Oh, you shouldn't be doing hip replacement because it's not better than that. And so this is a real problem. Articles like this create real issues and they recommend against something that's not only effective, but it's highly effective. In, in fact, the only thing that tops the 6.25 benchmark, insanely high benchmark of Virtas 4 would be kyphoplasty, <laughs> a different type of vertebral compression fracture repair. So the conclusions come out that they don't recommend this because it doesn't be a benchmark that is artificially high. And the average reader just doesn't understand that what I just explained to you, the average reader doesn't, the average consumer, the average healthcare consumer, or a person with vertebral fracture, they don't don't understand this. And they're not able to interpret that. And they they take it as a recommendation against, and then they lay in bed and die. So that's ill-advised to do articles like this without an adequate statistical analysis. And unfortunately, the mountain of evidence is there present accounted for and the molehill of the sham trials gets an outsized amount of attention because the lay press looks at this and said, Oh, greedy money grubbing doctors are doing procedures that are not valuable for people. And that's kind of the the underlying tagline of the sham trials without actually having doing something radical like looking at the papers themselves and, and finding out how they did it. And so these are very confusing papers. And they come out with recommendations that read like, well, vertebral augmentation is risky and it doesn't work, which is exactly, exactly the opposite. So vertebral augmentation is not only safe, it's one of the safest things we do. The complication rates on this are less than 1%. It's safer than almost anything we do. And for everything we do with the spine, I could give you a series of things that are done orthopedically and neurosurgically. Not only is one of the best things we do in terms of pain and functional improvement, it is the best thing we do.
1: Thank you, Dr. Bale. That was a really nice way to take us through some very complicated information that, as you said so well, has not been portrayed well, in the, especially in the consumer press. Thank you so much for that. And I, I hope our listeners, probably like me, will want to push replay on that and just listen to that maybe one more time. That was a wonderful explanation.
2: Uh, Liz, I do have one following comment to that. The article that we did that I referred to previously, uh, Drs. Hirsch, Nong, and I, the original mortality article we did, we asked the question, what happens to patients after the downward trend after the 2009 sham articles? So the articles that were published in the New England Journal in 2009 caused a downward trend in treatment. It caused about a 10% reduction in the number of patients that were treated. And so if you have a 10% reduction in number of patients treated, the question was what happens? And our hypothesis is that because patients have a increased mortality risk, if you treat less patients, more people will die. And that was absolutely borne out in the paper. The 2,077,000 people with fractures in the entire Medicare database, what we found is that 75,000 people are increased risk of death and up to 6,800 people demonstrably lost their lives because of that downward trend. So the problem is with these articles, with the sham trials and the interpretation of the data of the sham trials is it creates a perception for some people that they shouldn't be treated or of some physicians that they shouldn't recommend treatment. So we've been there and done that. We understand what happens. So you don't have to hypothesize what happens if you treat less patients with symptomatic fractures. We know that if you treat less people with symptomatic fractures, that you will have more morbid injury and suffering. And and, uh, this is something that we examined and we objectively wrote and and we published an osteoporosis international this last year in 2018.
1: Thank you. Thank you for that. And then of course, If people are not treated, as you've said a couple of times today, they're in debilitating pain and That leads us to another national crisis that we're having right now, and that's opioid addiction and opioid challenges. What role do opioids play related to treating vertebral compression fractures, and what are some patient challenges related to vertebral compression fracture and opioid use that you've seen in your practice?
2: Well, opioids play a very strategic role. So people talk about the opioid epidemic and, and how it's been a scourge in our society, and it certainly is. You know, as we had seventy thousand patients die last year of opioids, and it's just oh. it's a travesty of epic proportions. But opioids, then and of them themselves, they are neither good nor bad, just intrinsically. Chronic opioid use is something that will ruin people's lives, and it's in my opinion, chronic opioid use is, for the most part, the vast majority is inappropriate. But opioids are essential for relieving pain in the acute phase. And opioids are, are just fine to use in the acute phase for people with vertebral fractures, but they shouldn't be used as a treatment for these patients. The, the, the treatment is definitive, it's simple, it's minimally invasive, it's highly effective, and it's widely available. So for people with pain for vertebral compression fractures, the role of opioids is to tide them over to, they come into an ER. For example, in the middle of the night or in the evening or off hours, and there's, the team is not available to provide immediate repair. So but you can put a brace to try to ameliorate some of the pain. You can add some opioids to further decrease the pain, but you shouldn't rely on opioids for treatment. problem is it creates balance problems. It creates alteration of sensorium. If you were to take an elderly patient that may be already unsteady on their feet, it's a really bad idea to give them a bunch of opioids and, and tell them to get up and walk around, which is effectively the, the treatment. So this is a stop-gap measure. We don't need to be contributing to any more chronic opioid use for people with chronically painful vertebral fractures because there's a very safe and effective treatment available for them. And this is something that the opioids have been dramatically overutilized in the past decade to two decades. And now we're seeing the repercussions, the incredibly high rates of death and addiction from this.
1: Thank you. Thank you for sharing that with us. And I think it's really pointed with the information that you've shared with us so far, when there is something, an option out there that can so dramatically reduce pain and restore you to a quality of life and an increase the number of years you have left. It's important for patients to be advocates for themselves if they're not immediately diagnosed and to find a doctor who will really be a partner with them in their spine health. So thank you for talking with us about that. A couple more questions and then we'll close out for today. Can you talk a little bit about the clinical and economic implications of not diagnosing and treating vertebral compression
2: fractures early? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the projects that we have going on recently is is what's called a registry. And what we do is we treat patients just as we we treat them normally. And then we collect the data, pain function, quality of life data. We also collect a certain amount of economic data. And so what we found from the registry is we found that patients, uh, not only, and this is not surprising given the information we talked about previously, they do dramatically better in terms of Pain reduction, a 6.7 point reduction in pain, a dramatic pain improvement and a profound improvement in function. But what we also found is that patients that were treated promptly have a much less costly treatment course. So if we have somebody that's treated late in the game, what happens is they come in, they have a, a lot higher health utilization. They come in for clinic visits. They come come in for a dramatically increased number of MRIs. So apparently the, the clinician looks at the patient, the patient persistently painful, it's another clinic visit, they'll do an MRI, and they'll see the fracture. And as I mentioned previously, if plan A is right, bracing rest analgesics, they look at it, they see the fracture, may not know what to do. Plan B is bracing rest analgesics, and then they just go on for additional imaging, additional clinic visits and appointments, maybe go to the ER. and. So an example, one of our patients that were treated immediately, the cost on that is roughly $6,400. And the patients that were treated at, at six months, the cost is roughly $19,500. So it can, it can increase by multiples, the delayed treatment. And the treatment of the fracture is important, but also the treatment of the underlying disorder, the low bone mineral density. So... In our program, we treat the acute fracture, the complication of the disease process, and meaning the vertebral compression fracture. And the disease process is osteoporosis. So we treat the complication. We treat the vertebral compression fracture, and then we treat the underlying osteoporosis. And statistically, uh, you can decrease uh, relative risk reduction is measurement, but you can decrease additional vertebral fractures by eighty six percent. And that's um, referring to. Specific trial called the Active Trial uh, by Dr. Paul Miller. And he showed an 86% fracture reduction of the spine with treating somebody with a, a and That's an anabolic bone agent. So, what we try to do is not only take care of the fracture promptly, and this is demonstrably better in terms of cost by magnitudes than waiting, but we also try to treat the underlying disorder and decrease the risk of additional hip and spine fractures.
1: Thank you. Thank you for sharing that with us. As we know, in our value-based healthcare system, understanding that full circle is so important. Dr. Beal, you've shared so much information with us today, some of which might be brand new for our listener. What would be the top two to three things that our listeners should take away from this conversation for their awareness and understanding of BCF and the risk? Associated with treatment.
2: That's a pretty easy question. If you were to say one thing about vertebral compression fractures, that that they are underrecognized and under-treated. So, common sense: patients with severe back pain—that's not normal. And somebody that is over fifty, if they're female, if they have known osteoporosis if they have other risk factors if they have rheumatoid arthritis take prednisone that's probably going to be a fracture and this is best seen with MRI seek attention for this and acute or some acute back pain that's severe it's not normal so look into it go see your doctor and the undertreated part is many doctors don't know that the adequate treatment exists so still to this day the majority of Of patients that I treat for painful vertebral fractures are are sent to me by word of mouth. And this is very ironic since I'm a referral-only treatment site. So you have to get a doctor's referral to come see me in the clinic. But nevertheless, despite that bar, most of the people that come in are are self-referred, referred referred by word of mouth, and they're looking for relief of their back pain. So just have a common-sense approach. Severe onset of back pain is not normal. And vertebral compression fractures are twice as common as hip fractures. And, and so they're exceedingly common. And if you were to say one thing about them, they're under-recognized and under-treated. And so for the treatment of this, it's like an injection. It's one of the easiest and most effective things that I do. It's In, in fact, out of the 100 different things we do for people to help them with their, their back pain, treatment vertebroplasty, kyphoplasty, and implant kyperplasties. This is probably the, the single most effective and easiest and best for the patient thing that we do of all. And one final thing is, is that if, if somebody has a fragility fracture, an osteoporotic vertebral fracture, the underlying disease process, the osteoporosis, needs to be treated because not only is that vertebrae or those two vertebrae that are weak and need treatment of the osteoporosis. It's the entire skeleton. It's the ribs, it's the arm, it's the ankle, it's the femur, it's the hip. So all of the bones are being affected by osteoporosis and need treatment.
1: Thank you, Dr. Bale, for that wonderful summary and for sharing your vast knowledge to help our listener better understand this important topic. We have resources and links at nof.org under the podcast blog tab. So listener, we encourage you to go to that if you would like more information. And I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Bone Talk. For now, if you enjoyed this episode and possibly learned something new and helpful, please do two things. Subscribe to Bone Talk so you never miss another episode. And to share this information with your friends and family for now. Thanks so much. And we can't wait to talk with you again. Thanks and goodbye for now.
0: Thank you for joining Bone Talk, the National Osteoporosis Foundation's podcast that shares information, strategies, and inspiration about good bone health that makes active aging possible. To learn more about bone health, to become involved, and or help fuel NOF's mission with financial support, visit NOF.org.